you know, they're trying to push the limits with us, right? Really make it difficult. And, you know, in the end, I think they didn't expect us to just fund the deal ourselves. I mean, we put in a big chunk of money ourselves and said, screw it, I don't need the lender's money and finance it ourselves just to get all the rehab done. Because the problem is whenever you're running at 40% occupancy, you're not running green, you're running red, right? And they know that. So they're trying, even though they say word for word, one of the best turnarounds they've ever seen, they, it was impossible. So I just remember whenever we went to closing, you know, whenever we were selling this asset, we got back another seven, $800,000 just of money that the lender was holding on to. As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got the great pleasure of having Ferris Musa with me today. Ferris, what part of the world are you in? Oh, man, we're based, uh, Disrupt Equity is based out of here in Houston. It's kind of uh, my hometown. Grew up, born and raised here, so. Awesome. If the listeners want to get in contact with you after they hear what you share, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, the best way is just go to www.disruptequity.com and, you know, there's a contact form there or you can send me an email at uh, ferris at disruptequity.com. Great, great, great. So do me a favor and tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into the space. Yeah, so my background, um, really software. So, you know, growing up high school, I had my own web company. I've always been an entrepreneur at heart and you know, went off to college, um, originally wanted to do bio pre-med. I realized after a year and a half how much I hate memorization, much more of a problem-solving person. So then shifted into computer science. Uh, from there, I interned at Microsoft, and then I moved to Seattle and, you know, worked full-time at Microsoft for a couple of years. And, you know, I left Microsoft after three years of the vision of basically building software for industries like real estate that doesn't have it, right? And so, you know, initially was building software, and then you know, I kind of got into real estate investing accidentally initially, right? It was trying to build up my own rental portfolio, kind of scaled up to 12 and it was a huge headache. It doesn't really scale very well. And, you know, from there, I kind of fell in love with the real estate, right? Learned about syndication and have since realized the real opportunity is more about leveraging existing processes, systems, and software to really give us competitive advantage over everyone else, right? How do we be much more efficient? So, you know, started Disrupt Equity with my partner, Ben Suttles, and uh, the rest is history. You know, since then, we've been just buying large apartment complexes throughout Texas and Atlanta and Georgia. Wow. So what what led to the name Disrupt Equity? I'm curious about that. That's a good question. So uh, we like the name or not? I do. It's memorable, right? So for me, I was looking for something that had a spin to tech. Right. And in the tech world, you hear about all these companies that use it. We know disrupt is a common term. Uber's disrupting taxis, you know, DoorDash is disrupting the, you know, everyone's disrupting something. And so I was trying to kind of keep to my tech roots and the name disrupt equity kind of crossed my mind and it was available and went off and picked it up. So, you know, and, and really, cause I mean, for me, the biggest reason too is there's a lot of people in tech that have one, two, three, four, $10 million sitting in the stock market. None of them understand real estate investing right? There is real estate, there's an educational component to it, right? And so, you know, kind of trying to cater to those people and explain to them what it's about and educate them was kind of a part of the goal of the name too, so. Awesome. And so 
Of course, this is multifamily missteps. Sounds like you've done a number of different deals. Have all of them went to plan? Oh yeah, man. No, no deals ever goes wrong. Come on, man. It's a no. Um, as much as we're disrupt equity, the deals are disruptive themselves sometimes. So, uh, you know, no deal goes perfect. Honestly, like there's maybe out of all the deals we've done, one deal has gone not perfect, but pretty smooth. But I mean, people forget that this is a business, right? And these deals are multi-million dollar deals. They have staff, systems, processes, and do you know how to run a multi-million dollar business for each one of these deals? Right. And, you know, the most important thing for us is our brand and our reputation. And do we know how to, you know, do we work the deal as hard as we need to to make sure we hit our business plan? And so, I mean, you know, the, the best example I can think of, uh, I was mentioning it to you, Jerome, was just, um, you know, our first deal in Atlanta, right? We were in Texas. Texas markets were getting too expensive. We knew we were going to get priced out of Texas in terms of finding deals that are going to be good returns. And so, you know, we did our homework. We identified Atlanta as the next place we wanted to be in terms of deals are well-priced and their returns make sense relative to the price. And so, um, you know, from there, we basically found a deal that I, you know, I went out there and I saw it and I'm like, this deal is going to work, right? It was well-priced. And, you know, I knew it was, we were looking for a deal that we couldn't go wrong with, right? It's like, it could be a hard deal, but a deal that we knew we'd make money in returns for our investors, right? It's going to be our deal to get us into Atlanta. That was kind of the bar. And I just remember, you know, went out there, made the offer and, you know, the broker came back to us and actually accepted our offer, you know, after a little bit of negotiation. So I get out there, my partner had not seen the deal. So I take Ben, my partner out there to go take a look at this deal. And, you know, he had, you know, I already saw the value I already, you know, I saw what was going on. It was his first time seeing this deal. And I just remember he went out there and he was just, you know, kind of a little distraught. Let's put it that way. Right. It took him the better part of four or five hours to internalize that deal and see the opportunity and kind of get past it. And, you know, the beginning of the day, you could just see the disappointment. The weather was kind of gloomy. By the end of the day, you could see he was kind of grinning. The weather got better, right? And so, you know, it's a deal that we bought in Atlanta. We bought it, oh man, what did we buy it for? 38 a door. And, you know, we put another 10 a door into it. And so this deal was a deal that was 80% occupied on paper. And, you know, that's on paper, right? The seller didn't know what he was doing. Still, I mean, yeah, that guy just, it was a mess, right? A lot of deferred maintenance, down units, the whole shebang. And we bought this deal. Unfortunately, we had a bridge lender from hell, the worst of the worst. I mean, we'll never use these guys again. And they single-handedly made that deal a big headache, right? And, you know, we bought this deal, took it down to 40% occupancy, right? Just cleaning out all of the bad tenants, right? The drug dealers, the prostitutes, a little bit of everything, right? But turning it into a community, right? Get rid of the bad place. And, you know, then go in, put in a playground, you know, really improve the units, put up more security, really make it a place that people love being at, right? So for the tenants that stuck around, I mean, they would come up to us afterwards and just be super thankful for making it a community. It was just the rough deal in the, the rough area. Or sorry, it's a, it's a, it was the rough deal in a good area, right? Or, a, you know, a decent area. And so, um, you know, it was just a headache every step in the middle, right? And you know, it's a deal that ultimately we work through it, right? You work really hard on this deal for a year and, you know, you make a good exit and we made a very, very strong return on that for our investors. And so, you know, the deal was a home run. It just, uh, you know, I have a lot of hair. My partner doesn't have much more. So it's, uh, you know, definitely one of those kind of deals that it's a lot of work, a lot of stress, and you just have to kind of work through it. And, you know, that got us into Atlanta. And since then, we've continued to buy and scale in Atlanta. So it served its purpose. It worked out well. So tell me what about the bridge lender 
made them difficult to work with or yeah so bridge lending you know in multifamily the thing you always hear about is agency debt right our most common types of debt is fannie and freddie but we also do bridge and unfortunately fannie freddie is regulated bridge world is regulated so it's kind of like wild west of lending right and these guys you know and it kills me because we had two terms we were close to going with another group that is a reputable publicly traded lender you know, those guys would not try to screw you over. We ended up going with the other group. We didn't know at the time, obviously, who is very much a vulture. Their whole goal is loan to own, right? Where they're, you know, they're trying to get you to default. And, you know, every time we try to get any money. So the way it works with lending, with any lending, right, is usually the lender, you know, we're doing on this deal a million dollars of rehab. So that lender's going to hold on to a million dollars. You do some work, then you have to submit a draw, then they review it, inspect it, and then approve it, and then they release the money back out. And you kind of do this process. And these guys would essentially never ending movie field goal posts, right? They would say, oh, we're not going to release the money. I'm like, why? And like, well, you got to do X and this. I'm like, okay, but you know, we already did what you said, but okay, we'll do this and this. And they're like, you know, okay, so go and do it. Then you know, three weeks later, after we spent another $50,000, did what, this, what we had agreed to with them, that, you know, we tell them, hey, we're ready to get the money. And they're like, oh, no, we can't. We went back to our investors. Our investors didn't approve what we agreed to. And I'm like, so why did we agree to it? I mean, it was just... You know, they're trying to push the limits with us, right? Really make it difficult. And, you know, in the end, I think they didn't expect us to just fund the deal ourselves. I mean, we put in a big chunk of money ourselves and said, screw it, I don't need the lender's money and finance it ourselves just to get all the rehab done. Because the problem is whenever you're running at 40% occupancy, you're not running green, you're running red, right? And they know that. So they're trying, even though they say word for word, one of the best turnarounds they've ever seen they, it was impossible. So I should remember whenever we went to closing, we, you know, whenever we were selling this asset, we got back another seven, $800,000, just of money that the lender was holding on to. And so it was just, uh, that was a disaster. You know, people need to be careful of their closing process too, right? These guys, we, as part of bridge loans, you typically have to buy what's called an interest cap, right? And so the bridge loans, right? They're not fixed interest rates, right? They fluctuate with the market. And, if the buy essentially is a cap and think of it as insurance that will mitigate your upside. So if the, you know, if tomorrow the interest rates go to 20%, we, you know, we're capped at a certain amount. And on this property, it was a small loan. It was a $4 million loan. That cap cost us $50,000. We did a 15 million loan where that cap cost us $20,000. What's up guys. It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know, we launched Myers Methods in the fall of 2019 with the ambition to inspire a new breed of multifamily investors. If you are interested in getting into multifamily or scaling your current business, hop over to our website at MyersMethods.com to grab your free four-step guide on how to get the ball rolling in multifamily. Now, let's get back to the episode. Right. And so, I mean, they just kind of all sorts of miscellaneous costs, legal fees. I mean, you, you name it, they came up with it, right? Through the closing process and even on the exit. I mean, these guys would come out and inspect the property, require inspections, and we have to pay their full bill every time they come out. Not for the inspector, but even for anyone from their office to come out, take a look at the property, come have a nice vacation to Atlanta, go eat $200, you know, restaurants, whatever it is. It just, they nickel and dime you. And it was just, I mean, that was a deal that felt good just to get out of. So. So is your model to fix and flip or have you guys been holding some of your deals? No, so we do a mix, right? I mean, we, you know, for us, it's there's different kind of deals fit different kind of investor profiles and appetites, right? For risk. And so typically, you know, we, we like deals that are already stabilized and we're going in and doing interior upgrades. 
And, you know, we'll do the occasional deeper value add, right? And so we have another Atlanta that we've done was a deep value add. You know, again, this deal was, what was it? Had uh, 30 down units, 50% occupied that we've since gotten stabilized. And we got a BOV right before all this virus stuff kind of came about for, an ex, you know, an amazingly high price. And so we'll do some easier deals alongside some more complicated deals. Okay. And I don't want the listeners to miss it. You said you got an extra 800000 um, Yeah. I mean, it was just $800,000 of rehab money that the lender was supposed to give us throughout the process that they didn't. And so we were just, you know, funding it elsewhere, right? And kind of, you know, essentially giving the properties free loan, right? Just to help get the rehab going, just so we get out of the red. Because the longer you're in the red, the worse, right? No, it was, I mean, it's it's crazy because, you know, we talk about dilution of equity. You mentioned that it was a $4 million loan. And so, you know, that's another, what, 20% or so? In yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't free money. I mean, that was just paying ourselves back right, for the money we loaned it. But it just, you know, that, the lender literally had only given us of a million dollars, only released $300,000, right, of our rehab. And we were done with the rehab. So that's that's the important part, right, is... And we were at the finish line and they had only given us 25%. That kind of speaks to the lender and kind of how poor they were at the servicing side. So so is it common practice for you to raise that much extra cash or did you guys just pull that out of the general partner's pockets? No, that was out of our pockets. Yeah. So there's a free loan to the property, essentially. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So you just got to kind of have to be careful, right? And know what's going, you know, what these deals can take. And since then, we've learned... You know, we've learned to navigate the bridge world. We were very particular with who we use for any bridge financing. And we also, we we rather take on less leverage and hold on to more of the money, right? That's kind of the bigger learning too, is structuring our deals differently to make sure we have more cash flow or more cash in reserves, right? For deeper value add type deals. And so um, that's, I mean, I think that's the big mistake a lot of people make and, you know, you, have, you learn to kind of work through it and, you know, you have to be smarter about that because that works for one deal. But if we had two of those deals going on simultaneously, we, we don't have enough cash to fold both those deals. Right. So, you know, you since kind of you grow up from that and then start to learn how to scale appropriately. Wow. Uh, so the final question I have is, you know, what words of wisdom would you offer to the listeners? Oh man, you name it, we've done it probably in every single way. So um, biggest words of wisdom, know who your lender is, right? They are your partner on the deal. They do have 70% of that deal is theirs, right? So they're your number one partner. So make sure you understand the lenders, what they can do, what, and kind of how they operate, right? And kind of what the track record for them is. And the other thing too, is just make sure you have reserves, right? More reserves than you might think, depending on the deal. And so we know for deep value add deals, we put a significant amount of reserves just sitting there and, you know, for rainy day funds versus a stabilized deal, you don't need as much. So just being a lot more, you know, strategic about that and maybe last but not least too is just structure your debt accordingly, right? Now, kind of with all the pandemic stuff that's going on, these are the days I slash better, right? Knowing that we've intentionally gone in less leverage on some of our deals just to give us that buffer, right? And so, you know, we have deals where the note is so small that, I mean, we could operate that deal at 30% occupancy and still pay the note. Right. Versus right now, you're starting to see deals that are, you know, collections are dropping. Right. And they were just run so skinny that they're not able to service their notes. And so, you know, deal turning is critical to kind of success as you grow. 
Now that part is like super interesting. Do you have a specific percentage that you raise in addition to your um, traditional? The reserves, it's all came both on the reserves and even the deal structuring, right? So we have a deal in Atlanta that was a bridge that we, you know, we went in full uh, leverage because it was a deep value add, right? So 80% of our purchase price, which was on the sell, I mean, we're probably 60% leverage, right? But that was a deal that had a lot of CapEx. There's a lot of ways, you know, we had to get units online and now we've made a lot more income, right? So that deal, it's fine. But there's another deal in Atlanta as well that we decided to go 65% leverage, much lower leverage. It means we have to raise more money, right? But it made it a much safer deal for everybody. It's already a stabilized deal. Yes, we're putting in a million point two, I think, on that upgrades, but it's a stabilized deal. It's already producing right? And going in that leverage reduced the risks. Our investors saw that. We had guys that will invest, you know, to say 100,000, 200,000 every deal. They came in three, 400,000. So they, you know, they reacted to it. It's kind of interesting to see. And it got us, because we went lower leverage, we get a better loan, right? In terms of getting years interest only. So not only are we lower leverage, we also have a much lower risk on the loan side because we have so much interest only. And so, um, you know, that's critical to kind of realize that. And most people are scared of raising money. Right. That's the that's the hardest thing. How do I raise all that money? But a lot of times that's a piece of the puzzle. But really knowing how to put it all together into a, a cohesive risk adjusted package is critical. And so that's kind of the the crux. And I think as people grow, they start to realize the value more, more and more of the lending side. Right. And kind of not it's not just about going max leverage, longest term loan, lowest interest. Right. It's about matching it to the deal. Well. And I think you'll have an answer to this. And, you know, I, you're the first person I feel comfortable asking this. So because you've actually talked about the debt service and leverage, what, why do people go to debt service first? And why don't they talk about the other operational expenses that come with operating the property? I mean, they, because to the lender, that's the, that's the, that's the metric they care about. The lender doesn't cut anything besides how much are you going to, you know, how, how, how likely are you to service their debt, right? The other operational expenses are based debt service. And maybe that's part of the answer too, right? Because debt service is, you know, your income minus your expenses and then what's left over, right? All operational expenses should be, you know, they're factored into debt service, right? But debt service essentially is at the end of the day, how, how likely are you to cover the note? And so I think that's maybe part of the answer. I think that I would like to see more of is lenders look more at the type of deal, right? For a deeper value add, less lenders will look at it as, hey, you know, let's give you an extreme. If I have a property that's 100% vacant, right? That debt service is, right? Now, does that mean that if I do the business plan, it's, it can't, you know, let's say it's 100% vacant, but the units are rent ready. All they need to do is be leased, right? Well, to me, that's actually a much lower risk deal, right, than a lot of other deals. And so it's about leasing up. So I think a lender needs to look at, you know, the, the deal itself along with the debt service, right? You need to find, you know, some lenders will do that. You need to find lenders that want to understand the business plan. It's not just about a checkbox, you know, for them. So it's something to think about. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Ferris, for jumping on with me today. And um, appreciate you sharing with the listeners. I think they'll get a tremendous amount of value from this opportunity. Uh, Thank you, Jerome. Appreciate it. You made it to this juncture. So you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. 
and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you. Ooh.